Well, good morning, IBC family. Kind of like what was uh, discussed last week, I feel like I need to reintroduce myself. I'm your pastor, (laughs) one of your pastors anyways. It's really good to be back here. I appreciate my brother, Pastor Mike, uh, so faithfully and effectively filling the pulpit here in my absence, and so thank you, brother. And Pastor Corey, wherever he's at in the room, and there he is right there. Let the parties continue, not just stop. So there we go. <laughs> you know, after hearing Pastor Tom's uh, report just a little bit earlier, I felt like uh, my initial thought was, I think I just need to do a prayer of commissioning for us, and let's just release you. Because hearing about and just getting a, a taste of what God is doing literally everywhere, uh, I don't know about you, but I just feel kind of that reinvigorating empowerment to want to go and continue to be faithful. It's interesting, brothers and sisters, uh, I, 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 you know, again, I was there with Pastor Tom, and just hearing the stories, seeing the faces again, um, it does something for you. It, it pricks something in your heart in a good way that makes me go, we need to be, get after it. God is on the move all around the world. Even as I was reflecting this past week, you know, some of you asked, you know, so how was it, you know, is the common question, right? And it's hard to respond to a how was it question, honestly. It's like, where do I begin? But as I reflected a little further uh, as to this most recent trip, the one um, thought that kept resurfacing in my own mind was this, God is building his church 24-7. When I am going to sleep at night, God does not go to sleep in his church building process. In fact, when I'm going to sleep at night, people are waking up to continue the advancement of the gospel of Jesus. So literally 24-7, God is on the move And we got to hear just a few stories of how God is working in the hearts of brothers and sisters in Christ, wooing people to himself and with a heart to go reach their own people. You know, we we are closely partnered with a ministry called ZimZam Global. And uh, we've talked about it extensively, so I won't go into detail right now, but What I love and appreciate about ZimZam Global is that ZimZam Global really seeks to empower people to be church planters, and then we kind of move on. It's never to build deep roots or to establish a center, but it's all about equipping, training, empowering, and sending. And in the northeast part of India, you would think that, okay, we have to convince these people to plant churches. No, no. We go to Northeast India, and they're already planning to plant churches. We just get to come up, kind of be a part of this conversation that has already begun. We get to be a part of what God has already begun, and we're equipping. What's interesting is, uh, as I think Pastor Tom shared even last week, one such individual, he was saying, we've been talking for a long time about planting a church in my specific tribe. But it wasn't until now that we begin to actually write it down and make a plan. So it's incredible that we get to come alongside these brothers and sisters and go on, how can we help you? God is obviously already working your heart. How can we equip you and train you 
for the advancement of the gospel. But brothers and sisters, please be, please know this, that at literally every moment of your day and night, God is at work. He doesn't stop. We're not talking about he doesn't take a Sabbath rest or anything like that. But he continues to build his church. There's another story that I I had hesitated or wondered if I wanted to share, but I just, I'm gonna share it anyways. There's another brother who I don't have a picture of right now. His name is Saraj. He is a five-month-old Christian. Before, uh, a little longer than five months ago, Siraj was in training as an imam. He was a second-year Muslim. His brother is an imam, and he comes from a deep, deeply rooted Muslim family. But much like we heard from our Nepali brother, he wrestled and was conflicted because his faith could not answer certain questions that he had. And he was frustrated and he was confused. And as much as he dug in to the Quran, he still walked away frustrated and confused. I don't know how the circumstances came about, but there was a Christian missionary who happened to be coming into town and they made a connection. And through a, a series of events, basically the conversation came to this point. The, boy, the, the man, Siraj, says, if your God is truly the one true God, then he will heal my mom and he will heal me. His mother was on her deathbed with terminal cancer. He was struggling with paralysis And so the missionary prayed and his mother is walking around today as if nothing ever happened. And he walks around with no paralysis. So five months ago, Siraj was a Muslim and now he's a brother in Christ. By the way, he's a brother in Christ whose family is looking to kill him. So you need to be in prayer because he is in the a different part of India and his family even came looking for him and our dear brothers and sisters are basically looking after him and they've accepted him in and he's, even as he says in very broken English, I know very little and he's kind of a free spirit. He's lost in some ways because he's got no family but be in prayer because God is on the move. And some people are longtime Christians who God is empowering to plant churches, and some people are fresh in the faith going, God, what are you doing? But what I love is that we get to participate in this. I had nothing to do with that story. I just got to go and meet someone who God has transferred the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Brothers and sisters, if I were just to end the sermon right now, maybe my commission to you would be this. There are many other sinners waiting to hear that Jesus loves them. There are many other people that have yet to hear that there is a God 
who cares for them very deeply. And it really kind of lends itself right into the passage that we're going to be discussing here this morning. In Matthew chapter 9, we see that, again, Jesus is already uh, on the heels of many miracles and driving out demons. We see that he is on his mission as he is led by the Spirit, as he is listening to his Father, and he goes around and he sees a man named Matthew. And he says, Matthew, follow me. And Matthew drops everything and follows him. And then he's, old, and he's dining at Matthew's house with all of Matthew's friends. Pharisees can't wrap their minds around what Jesus is doing. Is Jesus condoning their sin? Is he condoning their lifestyle? And Jesus says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. You know, no one would accuse a doctor for hanging out with sick people too much, right? No one would accuse a judge for going, why are you always with people that belong in prison? No one would accuse a firefighter for running to the fire, right? That's ridiculous. That's what they're called to do. No one would accuse a police officer for, for pursuing uh, an incident. And yet this is what exactly Jesus is kind of exposing here. You see, you and I would be kind of crazy if we were to think that first we need to make ourselves better and then go see a doctor, Right? We don't say that, like, I need to get myself better and then I'll go see the doctor. No, we don't do that. We go to the doctor so that we can get better. We go to the doctor because we cannot help ourselves. We need the aid. We need the attention of someone else. And Jesus kind of points out this obvious logic to emphasize a very profound spiritual truth. And that truth is this, just as a doctor is for sick people, so the gospel is for bad people. Just, be, just as the, the gospel is not for good people who think they're spiritually healthy, no, the gospel is for bad people, people who know they are sinful and they know that they need someone to save them from themselves. The irony, of course, is that nobody is good. The gospel is only for bad people, and the fact is the, God, the, the Bible says that everyone is bad. There is no one that is good, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23 says. And so the, really, the difference is between people is some recognize their badness and some people do not. Some people recognize their sinfulness and some people do not. Some people recognize their lostness and some people actually think they're not that bad. You know, the the hardest person to reach with the good news of Jesus Christ are those people that think they're pretty good. The hardest person to reach is the person who thinks that 
I'm really not that bad. I'm a responsible person. I'm a, in all sense and purposes, maybe even a morally upright person. I pay my taxes, Steve. <laughs> and I don't cheat on my taxes. And I'm, res- I'm a responsible mother or father. I'm a responsible husband or wife. I do my part. I'm a faithful citizen. I'm kind to my neighbors. What need do I have? Aren't I good? You see, the gospel is only for people who are bad. And we should not miss this point because the point that Jesus makes in our passage this morning is at the heart of the gospel. The message of the gospel is that Jesus came to save sinners. And only those who recognize their sinfulness and throw themselves at the mercy of God can be saved. Before we jump into any sort of application from our text here this morning, I'd like to make a couple observations about this small narrative story. The first observation, and if you're looking in your notes, you can fill it in there. The first observation is this, that Jesus saw Matthew. Jesus saw Matthew. Now, we might dismiss this and go, well, I mean, yeah, Jesus was walking by. He just happened to notice Matthew in whatever he was doing or wherever he was going. But that's not actually what the word saw means in the text. When Jesus saw Matthew, saw means more than just a casual glance. It's not just a, I just happened to notice somebody kind of seeing. The word saw literally means that Jesus gazed intently at It means that that Jesus consciously singled out Matthew among everyone else that was present. It's almost as if seeing Matthew was not an accident. When Jesus was walking in his ministry, it's as if he was going, there he is. That's who I'm looking for right now. And the reason why Jesus saw Matthew in this way is because Jesus' ministry was always defined by being led by the Spirit and listening to the Father. You see, there was nothing haphazard, there was nothing accidental about Jesus and his ministry. He wasn't just looking or walking around going, I need something to do, I need someone to heal right now. No, Jesus was always being led by the Spirit. He was always listening to his Father, and therefore he was only doing and saying that which the Father had led him to do and say. For example, in John chapter 5, verse 30, Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John chapter 8, verses 28 and 29, Jesus says, I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father has taught me. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. John chapter 12, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment. 
So we see that the, the way of life, the, the way Jesus went about his ministry wasn't on his own initiative, but it was always being led by the Spirit, listening to his Father, and doing and saying that which the Father called him to do and to say. So seeing Matthew was not accidental. It was very much on purpose. It was very much Father-initiated, Spirit-led. Second observation, not only did Jesus see Matthew, but what makes Jesus seeing Matthew so shocking is that Matthew was a tax collector. Matthew was a tax collector. Now, most of us in here, if we've grown up as a Christian for a while or or we've been part of the church for a while, we, we know the reputation of a tax collector, right? We, we know the reputation of a tax collector because they're oftentimes lumped in with the, the group called sinners. It's interesting that everyone else is a sinner, but we're specifically going to identify the tax-collecting sinner. You see, tax collectors were like Roman lackeys. They collected funds for the Roman Empire. And there was all kinds of taxes that the Romans collected money for. I mean, there was poll taxes and land taxes and income taxes. But that's not, those were all, in a sense, legal. What what made tax collectors so uh, filthy in the minds of people was that they collected other taxes that the Romans did not require. For example, the tax collectors would also collect taxes for using roads and docking and harbors and imports and exports. They even had a cart tax where every single wheel was taxed. This may be a bad joke, but as I thought about that, I was like, that's probably why the wheelbarrow was invented. (laughs) At least it was the cheapest form of transportation. What made the tax collectors so ostracized in society was not just that they collected taxes that the Romans did not require, but they would oftentimes hire thugs and and, uh, people, enforcers, to collect the money that people owed them. And needless to say, because they worked for the Roman Empire, they were considered traitors among the Hebrew people. So the tax collectors hung out with other tax collectors because no one else wanted to be around tax collectors. They only, they only, their only company that they were kind of in friendly company with was people like themselves. And then Jesus, not deterred by Matthew, not be deterred by his reputation, not deterred by his profession, walks right up to Matthew and says, Matthew, follow me. And you know what? He does. He stands right up. In fact, if you look at Mark's account, it says he left everything behind and he followed Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but as I read this passage and I see how quickly Matthew just stands up, leaves everything behind and follows Jesus, it makes me ask the question, how does someone so corrupt How does someone so entrenched in thievery, how does someone so blinded by greed and so wealthy in resources just stand up, leave it all behind, and follow Jesus? 
I mean, no doubt, Matthew probably understood or had heard about the reputation of Jesus. The fame of Jesus was going around all throughout that region, that he was healing people and casting out demons. So Matthew was aware of who Jesus was. But how does a guy who is so lost and so corrupted and so unlike just stand up and leave it all behind? I mean, is, is, is there some kind of manipulation going on? Is he, is he kind of subtly getting in kind of Jesus' good graces? And is he working an angle here? What is going on? Well, the text doesn't say. But I'm going to read into the text for a moment. And I'm convinced that after you massage and reflect and just mull over this text, I think it's safe to say that the reason why Matthew was so eager just stood right up, left it all behind, and followed Jesus was because the Spirit of God was already working in Matthew's heart. You see, what we see is just a kind of the, the summarized version of this account. But I'm convinced that the reason why Matthew is able to just stand right up is because the Spirit of God was already convicting him, was already working in his heart, was already preparing his heart After all, John 16 says, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. I'm willing to bet that Matthew was very aware of his corrupt profession. I'm pretty convinced that Matthew was very aware uh, of the social stigma associated with his profession. I believe that Matthew knew that his life was not honoring to God, that he was troubled in heart, that he felt wretched and miserable and burdened by sin. And because he was considered a traitor by his own people, and because he was considered a, a hopeless sinner by the, the, by the religious Pharisees and scribes, we see that Matthew, no doubt, was hopeless, lost, probably thought there was no way to be forgiven, was definitely not accepted. And then comes Jesus. He's living a life of sin. He's got a very small circle of people that are willing to hang out together. And then comes Jesus. And Jesus walks right up to Matthew very intentionally and says, Matthew, follow me. I believe those two words, follow me, mean so much more than the text really gives credit for. You see, when Jesus says, follow me to Matthew, especially a guy like Matthew, he's basically saying to Matthew, Matthew, everyone else sees your sin and failure and corruption, but I love you. Matthew, everyone else sees your flaws, but I have plans for you. Matthew, no one else believes in you. You're a traitor to your own people, but I'm going to use you to write one of the Gospels. 
You have no idea the plans that I have for you. Matthew, all you see and feel is the burden of your sin, but I want you to know that I see something radically different. And that's all the invitation Matthew needed. He drops everything he's doing, leaves everything behind, and follows Jesus, no doubt with, any, with little chance to ever return. As one commentator put it this way, he said, the traitor, extortioner, and robber, and outcast sinner become, becomes an apostle and an evangelist for Jesus Christ. Matthew was a lost temporal, had, a, had lost a temporal career, but gained an eternal destiny. He he forfeited material possessions, but gained an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. He lost sinful companions, but he gained fellowship with the Son of God. Isn't that amazing? I mean, Jesus literally seeks out someone who nobody else gave the time of day for. Jesus literally seeks out somebody who everyone else had written off, who everyone else wanted to be judged by God. It's almost as if Jesus sees what we can become even though we may be lost in our sins. It's almost as if no matter how ugly or wretched or defiled a person's life has been, Christ can make it into something great for God. That's what God is able to do. I think when we look at the, the short narrative of Matthew and his salvation and his response to Jesus' invitation, I think there's three points of application that we are to walk away with. The first point of application is this. The love of Christ compels people to repentance. The love of Christ compels people to repentance. Yes, when you look at the scripture, You understand very clearly, and and the Apostle Paul even makes this point very clear. He says, it is the law that exposes our sin. It's the law that condemns. The law is important. It's not a waste of time. It's the law that calls sin, sin. Before the law, we were not sinful, but because of the law, we are now sinful. So the law is critical. It is vital. It exposes our heart. We need the law of God to tell us, in a sense, how bad we really are. But it's the love of Christ and the grace of God that saves. You see, the law does not save. It just tells us that we're in trouble. But it's the love of Christ that woos us into saving faith. It's the love and grace and mercy of God that leads us to salvation. You see, what people need to hear more often and what people need to understand more fully is that God loves them. That God loves them in spite of them, in spite of their actions, in spite 
of their past performance. And the way in which the world is going to hear about the love of Christ, regardless of their performance, is through you. It sort of begs the question, is there someone that you might know or someone that you are aware of that may be just waiting to hear these words, Jesus loves you. Yeah, but you don't know my life. I know. Maybe I don't, but Jesus does, and he still says, I love you. Is there a Matthew, perhaps, in your life that deep down needs to hear the words, Jesus loves you? And maybe not continue to hear the words that they already hound in their own minds. Get it together. What's wrong with you, you failure of an idiot? Get a job. No, those are the lies that they hear and speak to themselves every day. But what replaces those lies is the truth that Jesus loves them. After all, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. Now, no doubt you might come back with this possible rebuttal. And you might say, won't I be condoning someone's sin? Won't I be maybe condoning someone's lifestyle choice if I show them love and acceptance even in spite of their sinful choices? If I love them enough, even though they're living in sin, will I be saying that their sin doesn't matter anymore? Let me answer in this way. What condition were you when Jesus came and saved you? Were you healthy? Or were you sick? You see, Romans 5 says this, verses 6 and 8, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, but God shows his love for us and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, our job as Christians, our job as Christ ambassadors is to show people the love of Christ. The Holy Spirit's job is to convict of sin. Our job is is to show them the love and acceptance of Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that there isn't a time and place to call a spade a spade. It doesn't mean that that the, the Spirit of God may not lead you to clearly help people understand that some of their choices are in fact a direct violation to God's standard. But your job is not to convict That's the Holy Spirit's job. Your job is to love. Because it is the love of Christ 
that woos people and compels people to repentance. We might ask the question, could loving people in this way be misinterpreted as condoning their sin? Could pursuing someone in obvious sin be misunderstood by others? And the answer is yes. It could be. But I think I'd rather be accused of being too gracious than being too religious. I'd rather be accused of being merciful than becoming and replacing the Holy Spirit. After all, the way in you and I are to fulfill the law is by loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and secondly, loving our neighbor as ourself. After all, this is why Jesus came in the first place, right? He says to the Pharisees who are disagreeing with what he and his disciples are doing with the the tax collectors and the sinners, you're eating with these people. How can you just identify with these people? And Jesus says, he quotes from their own scriptures, go and learn what this means in Hosea chapter six. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You see, when we understand, brothers and sisters, the mission that Jesus came to fulfill, you understand that he did not come to judge the world, but he came to save the world. John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Look at verse 17. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus came on a divine rescue mission. He didn't come to tell us how bad we already are. He already knows that. He came to say, you're bad. You're sinful. You're lost. And I love you. And I'm going to save you. And I'm going to provide a way to forgive your sin. In fact, I am the way. I'm going to give my life and die so you don't have to. Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. So let me ask you a question, IBC family. As imitators of Jesus, as we were commissioned last week by our brother Pastor Mike, as imitators of the King, do you see people as Jesus sees people? Well, let me ask you this. What do you communicate to people by your look? How do you see people who are living in sin? Are you eager to show mercy? Or are you eager to show condemnation? You know, it's interesting to note that what you see determines what you do. What you see determines what you do. Or we could say it this way, how you, what you do reveals how you see people. It's the love of Christ that compels people to repentance. 
Jesus comes up to Matthew. And without, with very little commentary, just looks at him and says, Matthew, I love you. I accept you. I forgive you. Follow me. You're mine. And I think God still continues to do that today. And you know what? He wants to use you to relay that same message. That you would approach people even in their sin and say, I love you. I accept you. Jesus wants you. And you're a part of this family. We let the Holy Spirit do what the Holy Spirit is really good at doing. How many of you have arrived in here? Meaning that we are without sin. No. We are still very much a work in progress, are we not? And God, God continues to be so patient, so long-suffering, so eager to forgive, so relentless in his pursuit. Brothers and sisters, could we be that way to one another? Could we be eager to show mercy instead of condemnation? I gotta move on. The second point of application, and I'll make this very quick, is really more of an observation. And that is this. It's amazing how new converts always make the best evangelists. Have you ever noticed that? That someone who is new in Christ is usually the most excited about Christ? It's kind of convicting in some ways. But you look at Matthew. Matthew literally leaves everything throws a party, invites all his sinful friends, all the other tax collectors, invites Jesus and his disciples. They're having a great time until the the naysayer comes in and doesn't understand what's going on. But here's Matthew, a newly converted person, a new, new baby Christian in Jesus Christ. He's just on fire. He's loving it. He's been inviting everybody over to be a part of it. I mean, it's amazing when you, when you watch someone who is so relieved by the burden of sin and so found and accepted for the, maybe the first time in their life, nothing else matters anymore. You can see the weight that is lifted. It's like the, you remember the Samaritan woman in John chapter four. She went to the well to get water and then the the detail is that she ran into town to tell everybody, come see a man that told me everything about me. Did you ever notice that she left, it said she left her water jar and just left. All of a sudden her priorities completely changed. No longer did she care about drawing water from the well. It was all about come see a man who told me everything about my life. Come see a man who accepts me. Come see a savior who loves me. It's amazing when you think about it and you just kind of look at this text here in Matthew 9. It's as if the tax collectors and the sinners are comfortable around Jesus. Now this is no way to indicate or communicate that Jesus 
was dismissing their sin. He's not in any way condoning their lifestyle choices or their profession. He's not saying it doesn't matter, whatever. Let's just pretend it's not happening. That's not what Jesus is saying. What he is saying, however, is like, in spite of all that, I still love you. I still came to save you. I still want to be in relationship with you. I'm still very much for you. I see in you what no one else sees. It kind of begs the question, and as I was reflecting this past week, is do non-Christians feel comfortable around me for the right reasons? You see, there's kind of that tension you have to live in because non-Christians can feel comfortable around you because you are not acting like a Christian. You can profess faith, but you may not actually be living a life that is consistent with your profession. So it's possible for non-Christians to feel comfortable around you because you're not actually living as a Christian. But Jesus, the Son of God, perfect in every way, they are still comfortable around him. Why? Because even in spite of failed performance and lifestyle, Jesus still says, I love you, and I want to accept you. You know, there's something that uh, people have oftentimes done is they, they throw what's called a Matthew party. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, Matthew parties. It's based or kind of initiated from this narrative. A Matthew party is a party, because we all like parties, and we're actually in the season of parties right now. And no doubt you're planning your own parties, but a Matthew party has a specific intention or purpose of bringing both believers as well as non-believers at the same place at the same time for the purpose of reaching non-people with the gospel of Jesus. In other words, it's kind of like, you know what? How do I reach my non-saved friends? How do I reach my, non, my, non, my non-believing neighbors? You know what? I'm going to throw a party. And I'm purposely going to invite some key people who I know will take advantage of every opportunity. And I'm going to bring them in. I don't even have to facilitate the conversation. I'm just going to open up my home. I'm going to put a feast out for everybody. And God is going to do something supernatural tonight. It's called a Matthew party. Now, you can very easily throw parties and not have that as your purpose, but you could throw a party and by God's grace go, you know what, I want to reach people that I know who are still lost and dead in their sins, and sometimes the best way you can do that is not through your own mouth, but is through the mouths of others. So perhaps maybe even this holiday season and all your planning and festivities Perhaps some people on the invitation list are people that do not yet know Christ. Or perhaps some of the people not yet on your invitation list are people that do know Christ and need to be there because they are going to be your local evangelist. And your purpose, your intention is to bring them together so that Perhaps, by God's grace, he may save some. Third point of application, and men, you can get ready to come forward here. 
This is more of a question for some of us in here to grapple with. The question is this. Have you kept your distance, your distance from Jesus? Have you remained distant from the church or from fellow Christians because of your sin? Maybe you have not responded to the invitation or the, the gift of, that Jesus offers you because you feel like Matthew, you are far too gone. Maybe there's some of you in here that you might be thinking, I've made way too many mistakes. I'm a royal failure. I keep falling into the same sin over and over and over and over and over again. I'm sick of myself. Maybe some of you are in here right now are under the weight and burden of failures and sin. And maybe like Matthew, you've lost hope. Maybe like Matthew, you don't know where to turn. May I say to you this morning that the death of Christ is absolutely sufficient to forgive anything and everything you have done. There is, in, there is not any sin that Jesus has not come to die and take care of. There is not any sin that Jesus isn't willing and eager to forgive. Because Jesus says, I love you. And I want you. And no matter what you've done up to this point, I'm ready to forgive you. And he says, follow me. So perhaps there are some of you right now that just need to be released from the burden that you've been carrying for a very long time. Perhaps even as we celebrate communion, that today is the day of your salvation. That today is your day for freedom. That today is your day to walk in newness of life. After all, that's why Jesus came and come on forward. The reason why Jesus came, as was already shared, was to save us from ourself. He came on a divine rescue mission to save us who are dead and lost in our sin. And because of his great love and because of his grace and his mercy toward us, he gave his life. And he forgave us our sins so that we could be free and that we could experience newness of life even now.